Actions of the ritual such as hand gestures, vocal chanting and the body movements are closely investigated in the light of ideas about the construction of ritual space and spaces of representation drawn from sociologist Henri Lefebvre, religious studies scholar Thomas Tweed and geographer Doreen Massey's works on space and place. And additionally, for this uh, talk tonight, I examine more briefly the relationship of ritual practice to dance. That's a massive area, so I'm really going to keep it quite uh, contained. It's worth noting that although I use the term priest in this paper, this of course is an imported Western term, and the word priest in India can have many connotations, as religious studies scholar Vasuda Narayanan points out, that of the caste of Brahmins or the person who conducts domestic rituals, or the ritual specialist who carries out the public temple worship, which I'm focusing on today, or finally the role of teacher or guru as spiritual leader. I've worked extensively with the Tamil priests at the Wimbledon Sri Ganapati Temple in South London and those at the London Sri Murugan Temple in East Ham, uh, also in London, and it's these men that will feature in the paper today. So there are two forms of uh, main forms of Hinduism, I am sure you're all aware of these, but just to, to note it, Shaivite and Vaishnavite. Uh, and today I'm focusing on the Shaivite tradition. Now, in Orthodox Hindu-Shaivite ritual worship, only trained priests are permitted to be the intermediaries between the deities and the worshippers. There's, there's kind of one day in the year um, in a special ceremony where ordinary people, devotees, are allowed to to, to um, actually touch the deities, but that's a real, real exception. So, as I say here, no ordinary human being as devotee can touch the form of the gods and therefore must rely on a Hindu male priest to bathe, feed and perform rituals for the beings in the temples. In order that these rituals are enacted, the priests undergo many years of ritual training, both textual and in praxis. Each morning before entering the temple, they are required to perform specific transformative rituals on their bodies. So the analysis I present is based on many years of fieldwork carried out in these Shaivite Hindu temples, mostly in Greater London. I examine notions of, notions of embodiment, as well as the powerful controlling context of purity and non-purity, as it's understood in Hindu religious and cultural contexts. In this research, too, I investigate the cultural and social notions of the production and politics of space in terms of Lefebvre's ideas of space as a socially constructed, um, sorry, constructed product that cannot exist by itself. I use his analysis of space as three processes, spatial practice, representation of space, and spaces of representation with an emphasis today on the third process as a symbolic dimension where meaning is produced. Geographer and sociologist Christian Schmidt, following on from the work that Massey articulated, points out similarly that, and I quote him, space is to be understood in an active sense as an intricate web of relationships that's continuously produced and reproduced. So, let me just see. Yep, okay, where we are. I've written extensively on the use of space, sound, and visual power of Hindu festival ritual, but in this paper, intend to focus primarily on the body of the Hindu priest as a site of produced, representative, 
differentiated and contested space. The body is often, as Tweed and others have suggested, a container of the sacred and a sacred or sacralized space in itself. And Tweed notes the essential embodiedness that forms the core of religious practice, stating, um, this is from him, religion begins and ends with bodies. I'm, I'm just stopped there just to say that, you know, some of these statements are nat- much more acceptable now. In previous decades, they were quite um, contra- uh, controversial. But this acceptance, and particularly actually in religious studies, the move to look at the body and the importance of embodied practice has is, 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 um, begun to be quite extensive. Tweed argues how bodies may signal both collective identity and act as, and I quote him, pathways to the wider universe, end of quote, through ritual, possession, or shamanic processes. Bodies are emplaced in different spheres, public or private, different spaces, sacred or profane, profane, But these practices are also emplacing, since they work to ground or to locate the spiritual experience in particular settings. So I'm just really setting up the context before we go in to look at the detail of their ritual. So we've just got some references there. Uh, This is Kim Knott, who many of you will know, who's Professor of Religious Studies, who's done some very interesting work. And her book, this is her book, The Analysis of Religion Through Spatial Practice, not quite the right title, but similar. Uh, Very interesting work. Considerations of the notion of sacred, of course, are complex. In the academic study of religion, the term is highly controversial and heavily disputed and is used, as religious scholar Vaiko Antonin points out, and I quote him, as a noun and as an adjective in multiple connections with multiple meaning and side meanings. End of quote. The Latin root for the word sacred indicates not only to consecrate or make holy, but also a cutting, a setting apart, perhaps revealing the binary in Western thought of the concepts of sacred and profane, where that which is sacred is set in opposition to that which is considered profane. Antonin sees sacred as a cognitive category that both separates and binds, arguing that, and I quote, the representations of which are culture-dependent. So notions of the sacred are defined and attributed by sociocultural conceptualizations. When the concept of sacred is applied to spaces, whether physical or metaphysical, and I'll be talking about that kind of metaphysical idea of space throughout this, the implication is, is of a certain type of moral geography of space. The fact, as geographer Tim Creswell puts it, that certain people, things and practices belong in certain spaces, places and landscapes and not in others. Some commentators prefer now to use the terminology ritual space rather than sacred space. So... Uh, just see where we are with these. Yes, so in Hindu religious and social thought, the accepted hierarchical system of purity, shuddha, and pollution, ashuddha, is a basic and all-pervasive organisational feature, and therefore conformity to this system is essential in temple performance. So thus the moral or sacredness of the space, as it's seen by the Tamil Hindus that I've been working with, is protected through ritual practice. The complexities of the binding nature of the relationship between purity and pollution in everyday life, according to Hindu religious thought, 
can prove problematic for non-Hindus to comprehend, but its all-encompassing character as part of Hinduism demand, demands a certain level of analysis. Anthropologist M. N. Srinivas refers to the fact that, and I quote him, every Indian language incorporates terms for both purity and pollution. And he notes, um, there's more to it than this, but this is just a sort of summary, really. Pollution may refer to uncleanliness, defilement, impurity short of defilement, and even indirectly to sinfulness. So there's this uh, other level of, of meaning there, while purity refers to cleanliness, spiritual merit, and indirectly to holiness. So this is the context of when we're looking at temple practice, ritual practice, and the priests that we need to remember. So this concept of purity, not to be cons- confused with the Western concept of hygiene, is essential to Hindu worldview of humans and their hierarchical position within that perspective. On one level, the physical body is polluted every day by eating, procreating, emission of bodily fluids and excreta, as well as hair and nail clippings. These regular pollutants are dealt with by daily ablutions and in orthodox (coughs) households by employing somebody to cook, to wash the clothes and remove the polluting substances. And this system is, of course, not only applied to individual bodies, but to the whole social body. Anthropologist Chris Fuller writes about how the temple where the deities are believed to reside and where a devotee can contract a special relationship with those deities uh, must always be kept in a high state of purity so that this contact can, can be made. Through that condition of purity in the temple, the gods, this is the belief, the gods' power can flow and be received by devotees in what is called darshan, which is literally the seeing. Um, it's, it's an active seeing where a devotee will look at the deity, the deity's eyes that are open look back. And this is a very powerful moment of kind of, um, could be considered of unity, lots of ways of describing it. So it's about being, it's seeing and being seen. And that in itself is an act of worship. Now for that to happen, the... The, the rituals must take place. So, I, again, I'm just sort of setting up the context to show why these rituals that the priests do to their bodies are so essential, not even important, they're essential. Um, it's generally believed that the deities cannot be defiled. As Fuller says, they are assumed to be uh, inestimably pure but that they may become displeased by any impurity and so withdraw their potent power and protection. Hence the enactment of the ritual and the protection of sacred or ritual space are paramount in public ritual and are governed by a kind of politics of orthodoxy. Um, Let me just see whether... No, we'll leave that as it is at the moment. So the Hindu priest's daily two-hour rites could be more than that, but this is it's quite common, performed before entering the temple that include bathing and praying are accompanied by the chanting of certain mantras, usually Sanskritic, Agamic ones, and by specific movements and gestures that effectively transform the priest's human bodies into bodies that become sacred. Unseen by the public, these required private repetitive rituals invite the deity into the priest's body. Hand gestures uh, in the, the ritual system are called mudra, with symbolic and cosmic sim- significance are employed in this bodily transformation. Uh, these mudra are also used in general temple ritual. There's said to be 108 of them. 
but they also appear in the classical dance uh, Bardonatium uh, system of hand movements, which we usually use the word hasta for that, and and in and of course in Hindu iconography. Um, and anybody who's familiar with the, the Bardonatium, and we have somebody in the room who is. Um, they're, they're, some of the gestures are exactly the same. They've got different terms, different Sanskrit terms for them, but some of the gestures are exactly the same. Lefebvre argues that, and I quote, gestural systems connect representations of space with represent representational spaces, noting how such systems signify worlds codified by social and religious practice and reveal how sociocultural and religious space is created. Anthropologist Richard Werbner, writing of this, em um, emphasizing this, writes of ritual performers finding and resituating themselves in cosmological space. And we're probably well aware, I think we've got the slide up here, haven't we? Yes, of, of Catherine Bell famously describing the creation of a ritual body, one that is socialized into ritual action through the realisation of spatial movements and oppositions. Thus, as I'm saying, the priests not only transform their bodies through ritual, but align themselves with cosmic processes and hierarchies of the divine realm, creating a clear relationship between the human body and the cosmic forces. I'm just going to give a little bit more now of this sort of background theory, and then we'll have a look at the um, a clip of, of the priest going through these rituals and have a look at that. Stop there for a moment. So, the phenomenon of religious embodiment, where a priest can allow the divine to enter his body, calls into question the place of the individual in the cosmos. It's well accepted as Catherine Erndl says, that in Hinduism there's no clear dividing line between divine and human. Gods can become humans and humans can become gods. Commentators writing on Hindu ritual draw attention to the, that fluidity, the fluidity between divine beings and human beings, and note how the performance of ritual, as well as states of possession and trance, collapse any notion of boundaries of form. Uh, the Hindu context embraces a worldview that sees the embodied self, uh, human self, as a permeable, even porous entity, available for the gods and spirits to enter on demand or spontaneously. And this, of course, is quite different uh, to Western approaches that value, as Sanskritist Frederick Smith puts it, the normalcy of an inviolable and unitary self. Or as Geertz, Clifford Geertz describes, the Western conception of the person as a bounded, unique, more or less integrated motivational and cognitive universe. Like that. Um, so this idea that, you know, we stop here, um, that's, that's the, the, the boundary of it. An ability to enter a state of divine embodiment is indicative of sociocultural beliefs that identify powerful forces and influences outside the individual, in contrast to a Euro-American culture that identifies them within. So, in these um, obligatory rituals that the priests perform, as I'll indicate, different spaces in the body, such as the head, chest, hips, knees, wrists, hands and fingers, are specifically and spatially located, not only as a physical presence, but also in a metaphysical mode. This is 
a complex layering excuse me, and transition of an individual and physical body into what is conceived as a pure receptacle and vehicle for divine powers. So we'll look now at a film clip of part of the morning purification ritual. And this is a senior priest, uh, Sri Kananaya, who works in Wimbledon at the Ganapati temple there, which is a fairly traditional Shaivite temple. And I say fairly traditional because uh, it is traditional, but they also have... Um, uh, well, I won't go into it now, but there, it's, it, there's, there's a kind of interesting setup there. So let's just have a look at this now. See if we can go into it all right. Om Shri Guru Bhyodamaha Hari Om Mantra Moolam Guru Arvakyam Puja Moolam Guru Patam Dhyana Moolam Guru Armutihi Moksha Moolam Guru Krupa Sadguru Charana Rinda Abhya Namaha Shuklam Paradaram Vishnam Sashivarnam Chaturpajam ಅಸ್ತ್ರಾಯಪಡ್ಷಣ ಓಂ ಗಣಪತ್ಯಾಸನಾಂಗ್ರಮಾಂಗ್ರಮಾಂಗ್ರಮಾಂಗ್ರಮಾಂಗ್ರಮಾಂಗ್ರಮಾಂಗ್ರ
and indeed, according to Agamic texts, actions without mantras are not rituals. So, in this particular purification ritual, Kanan is invoking Ganapati or Ganesha, the main deity of this temple, who's thought to be the son of Shiva. He's got his triple uh, markings to show he's a Shaivite priest. Um, he chants in Sanskrit first a prayer to the guru or teacher, which in this case he offers to his own teacher. A bow to the teachers, to Shiva, Om. The speech of the teachers is rooted in mantra. The foot of the teacher is rooted in worship. The form of the teacher is rooted in meditation. The comparison of the teacher is rooted in liberation. A bow to the beautiful lotus feet of the teacher. And after this, he chants, chants the sankalpam, or resolution. He should meditate on the bright-faced Vishnu, four-armed, the colour of the moon, bright, whole, to end all obstacles. Then comes the uh, pranayanam, the prayer, and you saw him silently uh, there, after the first bit, we'll go through the gestures in a minute, he, there was a period of silence, and he's internally chanting the famous Gayatri mantra, uh, silently, internally. And after this, he sounds 11 mantras for Shiva. A bow to the head of the Guru, a bow to the mouth of the Supreme Spirit, a bow to the heart of Shiva, to the hidden Vasudeva, to the incarnation of Shiva, to the heart, to the head, to the locks of the hair, to the eyes, to the weapon, a salutation to his power. So the movements and gestures performed affect the words that are sounded in the mantras, and likewise there's, there's a reciprocal, the, the, the um, words are affecting the movements and gestures. In this context, the fingers and hands are not just limbs of the body, but carry divine energy or power called shakti. Each part of the hand, wrist and finger, represents a cosmic element, fire, air, earth and so on, or a deity, Brahma, Vishnu, sun, moon. So they're, they're, they're indicating... Um, these elements. The systems, system of chakras and nadis, which are the subtle nerve channels thought to run either side of the spine, are also referred to and delineated as centres of energy and purification in a metaphysical understanding of the human body. This system appears too in Vajrana uh, Buddhism. Some of you may well be familiar with that, where a monk may become temporarily the deity through use of mudra, uh, the gesture, and through meditative imagination. So, let's just go back to the gesture. So, Kanan is using first the gesture of prayer, Anjali, so you saw him doing it here. Then he's using Mugrashirsha, which is the deer's head, and he has it high, and then he places it on what's thought to be the, the top chakra of the body, Sahasrana. Um, he also talked to me about um, laying the mantras on the hand. So, uh, when he was doing this, He's laying mantras on the hands and how the two hands are complementary to, to, complementary to each other. And this, for, I'll just show you his notes as well. Um, so this is just the first part of the ritual. So I've only just done that analysis and I'm not sure how clear you can see this. Yes, you can actually. So it's not finished. 
um, but just breaking it down bit by bit to look at each section. As you can see, Sanskrit mantra, a translation, which we looked at on the slide, the movement and the name of the movement, if there is one, uh, the meaning of that, and then just breaking down the, 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 the timing of it. So this is just a start, really. But I think it's quite useful to get that kind of level of analysis. Um, I mean, this, as I say, is a start, and it, this can be taken further. But I just wanted to sort of give that notion of, of how it's working. And I think it just gives a feeling of the, of the complexity of it as well. Despite Hindu ritual being heavily based on and governed by a textual tradition, in reality the quality and purity of temple ritual is judged through praxis. Although the agamic texts are still considered the authority, the essential movements and gestures of the ritual are fluid to some degree. And this we find in ritual, that there's very kind of set rules and yet within its practice there can be often a certain fluidity. And it can be performed a little differently according to the practitioner and the time and place. All this allows for a certain ritual creativity. As Chris Fuller points out, how well a priest uses his body is interpreted as an index of how correctly he can perform ritual. Focusing on the body and its movements offers a convincing analytical tool that not only deals with the all-important texts, but also reveals the symbiotic relationship between text and praxis. And I think there's quite a lot more... I'm just sort of stopping there because I'm thinking about that now. There's a lot more to be unpicked in that area, that, that in extraordinary relationship. The priest's body movements and all-important gestures are a literal and performed translation of the authoritative texts. Here one is reminded of the idea of sociologist Marcel Mauss's techniques of the body, where a social and religious competency is acquired in bodily memory, creating a socially and culturally informed body as well as a ritual one, and most importantly, in this case, a sacred or pure one. In this way, as Sanskritist Uta Huskun puts it, the priest's body can be considered the residence of the god. So to demonstrate this a little bit further, there's some slides here of the chief priest at the same temple. This is uh, Sri Vigneshwaran Ayer. Um, and he's demonstrating some of the ritual mudra. So, again, laying mantras on the head. The third eye. The heart. So this is, this is when I talked about the specific locations in the body. Then he shows some of the ritual gestures used in the daily worship um, or puja, as we would call it. And this is a gesture, this first one, which is well known in the dance system. It's usually called matsya, fish, or crocodile sometimes in the dance system, but the, he uses the word makara, um, and it's for him in the temple, it's to indicate water, not fish. <laughs> fish are not used in the ritual. Uh, and here we have one, Mirai, would you say we've got that in the dance system, that one? I didn't. This one doesn't. I don't, I, this, to me, is one of the ones that is specifically for ritual. 
And of course, milk is used extensively in the ritual in the temple. So this is pouring milk, dhena mudra, or cow. I'm just giving some examples here. So this is rather nice. We'll see a little sequence of this in, in, in a film clip in a minute. So pushpaputa is a flower um, offering, which is used, again, a lot in the dance. But here, it's saying to the deity, please come. And, and then please sit. Uh, it's tupataka hands. So again, oh, sorry, next one. I'm looking at it on there. So tupataka hands. So come, please sit. And please stay. And this is the uh, symbol of mushti. Uh, yep. Or we have the different terminology for it being used in temple ritual. But those, those appear in the dance system. So here we have... Let's see if we can get this clip up. These are... This is Kanan, the first priest that I showed, with one of the other priests. I've just for, sorry, forgotten his name at the moment. Um, just doing... Um, not with the deities, but they're doing. They're actually doing a ritual for a family who've paid for this ritual, um, and you'll see him using his hands in this clip. Just go into this is. This is coming here. Have a look at his hands. Okay, so we saw him there very quickly doing the gestures that we just saw and also the cow, um, water, water and milk ones. So all those ones that were illustrated earlier, he goes through in a very quick sequence. Okay, so I'm going to actually just leave this here and turn to, turn to 
as I said earlier, a brief look at the dance and, and its relation, because I've been mentioning it as we go through. So, last shot of the priests there doing the ritual. So let's turn now to look somewhat briefly at the relationship of ritual to Indian classical dance forms. And as I said, this is a vast area. There's a lot written. It's quite a contested area. So I'm going to just, in a way, synthesise and, and kind of draw some aspects that are related to what I've been saying about space, hopefully. So um, we'll have a look at the relationship of ritual to Indian classical dance forms. The senior Hindu priest at the East Ham Temple, uh, Guru Kal Sri Naganathan Shivam, is adamant that dance belongs in the temple because, according to his view, the practice and performance of the classical dance Bharatanatyam is akin to the enactment of the ritual puja in the temple. Now, this is interesting because, and again, I stop here. Traditionally, and I'll talk about this as I go through the paper, the dancers were ritual specialists. And we have a, a historical period where that um, became uh, separated and we're now seeing dance reappearing in the temple. And this is quite recently he is saying this. So he talks about the ritual. Oh, I'll just go through a couple of these slides just to show. So we're seeing some hand gestures here. Um, I'm not going to talk about them all, but there we have the shikara in the dance form. Um, we also had, uh, well, we had Mikrashirsha, so, but, but they're similar to what we were seeing before. So I'm going to just talk about this. Um, he talks about ritual. He stressed when talking to me that the puja, the, ritual, the, the um, devotional ritual, embodies three distinct and essential aspects. Kriya, which literally means action, but here he wanted to talk about it as the mudra. So again, that sense of the, the hand gesture being very efficacious, very actively um, powerful bhavana the emotion and tiana meditation so this is the priest talking about the ritual and all three of those according to him must be present for the puja to be complete and successful but similarly he argues that these same three features are fundamental to the dance form mm -hmm. the hand gestures hasta forming one aspect of the abhinaya, that's usually just the, the facial expression, but in fact it's the whole depiction of emotion and character through face and hands and body. Um, abhinaya, or the expression of the emotional content of the dance. Sri Naganatha then explained how shakti power is made available through the hand gestures in the ritual mudra and in the dance movements, the hasta. We don't often talk about the dance, the, the, the hasta and the dance having quite that potency. Uh, it's, it is often spoken about in ritual. He spoke of their essential potency to communicate to audiences. Dance in the temples, however, has a contested and much discussed and debated history. The cast of Devadasi, the female ritual specialist who played seminal roles in temple life, enacted a tradition that was both sacred and secular. This is lovely. She's the last remaining Devadasi in, in Orissa. Um, in their sacred or ritual work, the Devadasis were employed by the temple for specific services, uh, service for the deities. At the, those times, their work was solely for the gods. For the ritual puja, during the awakening, bathing or feeding of the deities, the women would dance and sing. And just the Brahmin priests would, conducting the ritual with them would be in attendance. These dances and music for the deities were specific and composed of ritual elements. 
In their more secular role, the Devadasis performed in temple dance dramas for an audience of devotees, and they also danced outside at weddings and other festival occasions. And these dances would incorporate what is now classified as classical as well as folk steps. In Tamil Nadu, in South India, most temples were constructed with an adjoining mantapa, a hall built especially for performances of dance and drama. Many of these were pillared and, in addition, had carved stone receptacles that were specifically designed to hold the oil that was lit during evening performances. So space that was still part of the temple was dedicated for that purpose, which I think is interesting. And I've just put a slide in here, which I took. This is the senior priest at East Ham. The, the young girls have been performing at a festival occasion, and he is offering them, offering them prasad, so blessed, he is blessing them at the end of their performance. So he, he's the one that I spoke about, talking about how uh, dance it, it should be in the temples. Uh, I mean, that's kind of, in a way, his role, but many priests aren't terribly interested, so I think it's quite, it's quite unusual, and he is quite an unusual man. So I'm just going to cover a little little bit now on the temple itself and the space related to dance. So, the significance of the relationship between dance and the temples is vividly illustrated too by the presence of sculptural dance stone carvings, most famously depicted in the temple at Chidambaram, Tamil Nadu, Nadu, but also in temples such as Tanjavur, Kumbakonam, Tiruvannamalai, and Avrijatalam, which all provide a comprehensive visual record of dance poses and movements. Renowned Indian dancer Padma Subramanian has reconstructed these sculptural positions and postulated that they show actual movements and not just static poses, as has always been assumed. And from this she developed a system of dance called Paratanrityam. Her premise is that these sculptural stone carvings adorning the temple walls are an exposition of chapter 4 of the Sanskrit text of the Nakshashastra, a treatise on dance and drama, which itself deals with the karanas or units of movement. And she argues that the inscriptions found along with the karana sculptures prove that they were not meant as mere architectural embellishments, but as permanent illuminaries of the knowledge of of, of, of Parata, who is supposedly supposed to have written the Natchashastra. So that's quite an interesting argument, that um, in a way that maybe the temples, the carvings were there to not just illustrate, but to maybe teach people to have a codified system set out within the the carved walls. Um, Again, there's quite a lot been uh, studies and, and work done on this kind of thing. Um, and especially if you think back to, to times where people weren't reading texts or the texts were the, the privilege of the, the learned few, then just like our great cathedrals, that, that, that the carvings and, the, and the, actually the stained glass were there to, to teach, uh, teach the, the Christian story, I, I think we have something very similar in these temples. So again, just, just looking at these kind of links that are, that are very obviously there, um, a famous uh, Devadasi dancer, Bala Saraswati, very, very well known and very highly regarded, spoke, um, this is in a presidential address to the Madras Music Society in 1975. She spoke of the Bharatanatyam recital using the imagery of the structure of the Hindu temple. So each item of the performance being likened to a further step um, of a devotee's journey towards 
his deity, his or her deity. So the, the, the actual dance recital she sees as a physical and metaphorical kind of analogy, yes, yeah, an analogy really of that, of that uh, move, of a kind of religious move. It's quite an interesting thing. As the dancer dances, it is as if she proceeds towards a meeting of the deity in the temple's sacred space. And I'm just going to quote her now. Uh, see, I haven't got all the, all the uh, words on that slide, so I'll take it through slowly. We en- this is her words. We enter through the goparam, that's the outer hall, of Alaripu, that's the first dance item in a dance recital. Across the Adha Mantapam, the halfway hall, of Jatiswaram, the next item in the dance recital. Then the Mantapa, the great hall of Shabtam, third item. And enter the holy precinct of the deity in the Varnam. That's the, a long, uh, intensive number in, in the Bharatanatyam recital. This is the place, the space, that gives the dancer expansive scope to revel in the rhythm, moods and music of the dance. The Varnam is the perpetuity which gives ever-expanding room to the dancer to delight in her self-fulfilment by providing the fullest scope to her own creativity as well as to the tradition of the art. So it's a bit of a long quote, but it's really this idea that she uses that... um, as I say, it's like a move through the areas of the temples, which again are specifically designed for that journey. And she talks about, um, after the Padam, the final item called a Tilana, she talks about that being like the Darshan in the temple, where, where you have that moment of... of, of of, 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 the, of the kind of climax of the, of the ritual. So the culmination of the dance performance is seen to be synonymous with this, the most important and sacred aspect of temple worship, the darshan, the moment of beholding the deity and through the seeing, receiving the blessings. In that powerful moment, it's thought all differences are dissolved. So I'm, I'm not going to go into that too much more because there's, a, again, a lot in that and, and we don't really have the time or space for it tonight. But I just, I'm just i trying to kind of show how in traditional thinking about this, it, both in the dance and through yeah, religious practice, you've got this kind of linking. Now, yet we need to be aware of the current slippages and discrepancies in the religious and ritualistic conception of the dance form. Dance scholar Avanti Maduri writes of the problematic tension between secularism and religiosity in South Asian dance in today's Indian society. Despite the dance form of Bharatanatyam uh, emerging in Bharata's Natya Shastra, as most people believe, Maduri notes that, and I quote her, India today is psychologically restless and far removed from Bharata's religious state of mind. Indian dance today, however, functions in a secular reality. Today's Bharatanatyam, with its dance stories of God evoked in a secular world, is analogous to a human being walking forward with his face turned backwards. And I think it's a fantastic image to think about this, you know, I'm talking about how it perhaps has been and what I haven't really touched on so much today, the changes that are happening. But, you know, how do we reconcile these, these different movements, one that's sort of deeply religious... Uh, uh, and and today's dancers that are still learning the same pieces um, 
and performing in maybe very, very different contexts. And, as I said earlier, also the young dancers now appearing back in the temple at, at religious festival times. You know, how is this all reconciled? So, uh, let me just see where we are now. Just coming to the end. So just again, to, to give a little bit more of the detail, we have to remember also some things about the temple. Again, this is a lot of detail that we can go into, which I can't today, but I'll just sort of touch on it. There are strict rules codifying the building of Hindu temples that are set out in a medieval man manuscript called the Shilpa Prakasha, which um, are still adhered to today, actually. And they're dominated by a complex cosmic symbolism. And they conceive of the temple as a cosmos in miniature, a place which functions as a link between the gods and man, as we've already been hearing. And it's said that on that base, um, I haven't actually put a slide of, of the diagram, but you can find it diagrammatically. The base of the temple, if you could see it laid out, is thought to be the image of a cosmic man. Um, and so there's a sort of sacred geometry uh, of, of that plan. Uh, it's called the Vastu Purusha Mandala. Um, Purusha being man, Mandala being, well, the, the, the kind of... You, I think most people are familiar with the word man, uh, mandala. But the, but the buildings of the temple are based on that. So the base of the temple is described anthropomorphically as the feet, the pada, the walls as the body and limbs, the griva, and the roof as the head, the shikara. And we've already had, remember that, the, the priest <coughs> placing the gestures on the head. We've had the um, symbol, this is called shikara. The grihagaba, or the womb, which is the kind of inner sanctum or the sacred sanctum where the central image is placed, that's really uh, only accessible to, to, to the priests, certainly not in strict temples to, to non-Hindus. And that's um, the dome of this um, inner sanctum or womb chamber represents a mountain peak. It's a symbol of sacred purity and the abode of the gods reached only through arduous pilgrimage. So again, we have this kind of analogy um, which we come across in many uh, religious doctrines of of the the journey to that end, and, and as I was saying earlier, we have it all set out by somebody like Bala Saraswati in the dance form, which is really interesting. Um, so it indicates the transcending from the mundane to the divine. Sometimes the levels in the dome or tower are likened to the points of the chakra in the human body. Um, and to summarise, Stephen Heiler, writing about this, notes the temple compound is thus a microcosm, a conscious replica of the conceptual universe. And um, religious studies scholar Diana Waghorn, very interesting book where she's looking at the growth of temples in the States and in the UK, lots and lots of new temples being built, and they're all being built according to traditional uh, doctrines, uh, very strictly, but they do have concessions like they have underfloor heating because it's freezing cold in our temples, and they have windows rather than open spaces, so there are some concessions. Uh, she writes um, of a renowned Indian architect, uh, arch sorry, architect Ganapati Stapati. Stapati is a, the, the kind of um, cast of architects. He's designed many new temples in India and abroad, and he states the entire temple is the body of God. Once again, physical space is metaphysically and cosmically linked through patterns of socio-religious socio understanding. So, uh, I think just moving to the conclusion now. In conclusion, I'd like to cite 
religious, study, uh, religious studies scholar Kim Knott, who, using a spatial analysis to examine the location of religion, states that it is through the body and the hands in particular that, and I quote her, cultural acts of separation and signification can be achieved. These spaces of representation, as Lefebvre terms them, create meaning for Hindu devotees through their symbolic dimension. So here in this uh, presentation, the discussion has focused on the ritual actions of the trained Hindu priests, indicating how, through specified ritual praxis, their human bodies are transformed into spaces eligible for the deities to communicate. Power is transferred from the deities through bodily purity and symbolic gestural actions. The place of dance within temple ritual and practice, although heavily contested today, has its origins in the Devadasis, the female ritual specialists. The new growth, however, in the teaching of Bharatanatyam dance and of dance performances in the Tamil temples indicates a greater concern for the tr transmission of traditional culture to the young people and is not without certain ironies. But close links do remain in the system of hand gestures practised by dancers and in the symbolic representations offered by dance performance. Spaces in and through the temple too bring a multi-dimensional and multivalent conception of man's place in the hierarchies of the cosmos. In both cases of the temple ritual and the form of the dance, according to Knott, Kim Knott, the body through a spiritual gesture, gesture system has produced a new space, one that is physical, social and symbolic. And I'm just going to end on that note. Thank you very much.